Hey everybody, on today's show, we look at a world without Image comic books. On the 30th anniversary of Image Comics, we examine what almost didn't come together. What talents would have broken somewhere else? What talent would have shined at some other publishers? What sales would have been impacted? What kind of impact did Image Comics have on technology, on coloring, on publishing, on production values, on page rates? We take it all into the spectrum today. We examine it from all ends, beginning our new series on a world without image comics. Hey, everybody, this is Rob Liefeld, and you are listening to Observations Season 3. We are heading into Season 3 of Observations, born of a pandemic and loneliness and a need to talk about his comic books and his spinner rack and his mighty Marvel Treasury editions. Uh, this podcast took um, took flight, and we are uh, hundreds of episodes in now and could not be more excited to share with you this new season, and we are going to get off to the quickest of starts today because um, I, I, I feel like we have uh, finally gotten to some really uh, great periods uh, in history, uh, uh that I can start sharing some stories I've been holding on to. So season three is going to be the richest, uh, most exciting season yet, building on on a lot of the previous seasons. Um, new new listeners, if if season three episode one is your first episode, I started this in uh, 2020 and uh, really started with my actual first experience with my love and consuming of comics. Uh, uh, the first episode details my very first memory of buying an Avengers comic uh, featuring the Squadron Supreme, my my encounter with what I called Echoes. Like, hey, these characters kind of look like the Justice League, okay? Like, these characters kind of look like characters I've seen in this other publication. And uh, that is where my, 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 my uh, love of comics came from, was 1975. A couple comics here and there made their way into my hands in 1974, but the, 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 for some reason, at seven years old, I was able to skateboard to the corner market. And again, longtime listeners know that's Magnolia and Broadway in Anaheim, California, where the liquor store, the 7-Eleven, the Stater Brothers, and the Pizza Hut were all positioned on each of the four corners uh, uh, of, of the crosswalk. And uh, and man, that, that, that intersection was rocking. And it is where my love of comics, my passion was born. My first issue of Avengers was drawn by George Perez, okay? His first issue, Avengers 141. And, uh, you know, we have gone kind of chronologically up through time over these last two seasons, these last two years. And, the, uh, the you, you know, the, there's an episode that I highly recommend everybody listen to called The L Boys. It's called The L Boys. And it uh, details how Mr. Todd McFarlane, Barda, Barda, uh, would, would encounter Liefeld Lee Lim Larson, The L Boys. Uh, that episode was and remains my favorite episode to recount to all of you because it was the beginning of something truly special, a period of my life that is really exciting, that gathered together friendships uh, that, that would create uh, Image Comics. This is the 30th anniversary 
of Image Comics. This is 30 years. Image, the comic books that you picked up in April of 1992 were being drawn now. They had already been solicited. Interior pages, covers. Image Comics was coming your way. It had been announced. It had been, it had been um, um, murmured. There had been a, an ad, an ad in the CBG that I'm going to get to. Comics Buyer's Guide, shorthand, CBG. The logo said CBG. It was called the Comics Buyer's Guide. I took a full page 11 by 17 ad out announcing the arrival of Image Comics and its first ever publication, The Executioners. And uh, that's a story in and of itself and, and, and might be uh, a segment for, for another episode. But, but there are stories that I've been holding on about this historical time, this 30th, 30th anniversary of Image Comics. Of course, being the guy who named the company, being the guy who designed the company's logo, um, being the guy who launched 14 comics in its first year. Um, uh, uh, I just, uh, I have a very special memory. 1992 is a very special year, a very special memory, but not only for me, it's for you. You guys tell me, I have seen you in the past year. You know, it's funny, my, 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 uh, my son asked me last year, <laughs> New Year, same old flubs. My son asked me last night, how many appearances did you do in 2021? So this last year, I went through the floor. I, I did a, a, a tour of Florida, uh, four stops. I, did, I, I went to Arizona. I was in Southern California three times. I went to Chicago. I went to New York City. If I'm, if I'm leaving somebody out, forgive me. I, I went to Texas. Of course, I went to Dallas. I went to Zeus Comics. These guys are great. Uh, I got out. I met some of you, not as many of you as I'd liked, but as we found our way through this new world of pandemics and masks and vaccines, um, I felt that I could get out there and I could meet with you guys. Uh, the Deadpool and X-Force anniversaries were pushing it the most, but along the way, uh, so many of you told me of your love of Image Comics, of this period in your life, uh, of these titles, of the movement, of the announcement, your favorite characters. Uh, it, it, it was truly... I feel like I feel like last year was the setup, the cue for for this most monumentous year. And uh, if you listen to the L Boys episode, you will definitely get a sense of how things were coming together. Because I'm going to refer back to that a, cap, a couple times today. Because the 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 subject of today's podcast that we're going to get right into is a world without image comics. We are going to ponder very carefully, um, very systematically. I'm going to take you back to 91 and 92 and all the decisions that were being made that put us on our course that we eventually found ourselves on. But each one had a very specific or specific multiple obstacles uh, that that where things could have easily gone the other way. This was not the tightest of unions. This was... Uh, this was, this was a time where a lot of guys were doing some soul searching about whether this was the right move for them. And, 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 and this is going to be a series. I can't do this all in one episode. We are going to do a series, a world without image. I love what ifs. Okay. I, I love the, what if that guy were to do that? Okay. Case in point real quick. When I was a kid, Frank Miller had just gotten on Daredevil. You've heard Frank Miller so many times on this. You're like, is this another Daredevil story? It's not. I'll tell you right now. It's not right. as he gone on Daredevil? A full-page ad in all the Marvel comics ran announcing that he and a writer named Roger Stern were going to be taking over Doctor Strange. Frank Miller illustrated an entire full-page, brand-new uh, illustration of Doctor Strange and Clea. He's, you know, wielding his cool, uh, 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 you know, bands of Vistora or whatever you know, supernatural uh, thing that he was summoning. And I'm telling you right now, 
It's like Frank Miller's doing Doctor Strange. Wow. That didn't happen. Never happened. Never showed up. It was before the internet, before um, I was reading fanzines. So we, we would get our information. It was announced in one of the fanzines because they picked up on the queue that Roger Stern and Frank Miller are going to be taking over Doctor, Doctor Strange. Wow. Well, Frank decided to write and draw Daredevil instead. Uh, having removed Roger McKenzie from the equation, he moved on. And he took over Daredevil, and we never got Doctor Strange. But does that mean that guys from my age group don't debate all the time? What What would this... What if Frank had done Doctor Strange? I know behind the scenes all of the pieces that were moving that were going to create uh, alternative destinies for everybody had they not chosen Image Comics. We're going to really examine how Image Comics changed the entire industry. This is not an ego bloat because everybody, every single player plays a part in this. Uh, Jim Lee plays a part. Todd McFarlane plays a part. Mark Silvestri plays a part. Jim Valentino, Eric Larson, Wills Portacio all play a part in this giant, you know, storm that we created uh, called Image Comics and each person almost didn't make it, almost didn't do that. But once we did and because we did, everything else changed. Um, I'm I'm, going to start kind of in the end of this to give you an idea. One of the things when people say, how did Image Comics change comic books? I've read this over the years. I've read this from journalists. I've read this from fans. I've read this in letters. The three most common things people say that Image Comics changed was production quality, paper. Higher quality paper, printing, cover stock. That's true. We wanted to stand out and immediately paid a little more for all of our production. There is an excellent episode that I did on Todd McFarlane about Todd's toys. Why he shouldn't he should have a statue erected in the Toy Hall of Fame because he changed toys because as he said he decided to pay four more cents, five more cents per figure. Something that Mattel or Hasbro wasn't willing to do at the time to give you the extra articulation, the extra sculpting, the extra detail. That's really what it boils down to. But then when you do it four cents times a million figures, times five hundred thousand figures, you can see where an accountant and a cost manager wants to not put that four cents per figure. In the same realm, we put that whatever it was, it wasn't four cents, whatever it was towards buying better paper, better, better paper, uh, cover stock and, and, and creating a, 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 what we thought was a better product. If you picked it up off the shelf, it was thicker, it was shinier, it was slicker. And, uh, then dovetailing behind that computer color, computer color, you know, we changed the way that comics were being, uh, were, were being, were being colored, and uh, and 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 the the end result of that is every comic book that you pretty much see on the stands today. Now, did we create computer color? We did not create computer color, but I'm going to give you an example, okay, of how things altered. The last thing you'd say people would say is um, is page rates, and 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 uh, I mean, obviously, creator owned stuff had already been out there. We were we just put a bigger spotlight on it, um, but but we definitely. Uh, got page rates bumped across the board for the better part of a decade because the other publishers wanted to keep talent away from us. And if they knew they were coming towards us, they were able to use interest in us to drive up their own page rates. And in some cases, you know, we ended up paying through the roof to get guys to cross the street. Case in point, Stephen Platt. He'll play in, he'll play a part in this. He was a hot young penciler on Moon Knight. He was going to do, go do cable. I offered him $40,000 an issue. I guarantee you he was making less than $5,000 an issue, $40,000 an issue to do exactly what he was doing on Moon Knight, Pencil and Ink, and come do it for me on profit. 
If you could do it a month, do the math. That was a big, big payday. He jumped. He bit. He came and worked with me from 1993 all the way through 1999. I was uh, 98. I was Stephen's primary employer for six years. Uh, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98. Five, five and a half, six years. Because 98, 99 was where it started. By the middle of 99, he was off. But that $40,000 in issue was what made the difference. Um, somebody like a Dale Keown, Todd McFarlane is a very charismatic person, but his charisma, his charisma was lost on Dale. He had a, he had honed in that Dale needed to join us, that Dale needed to be part of Image Comics, but his wooing and phone calls and all of the the mutual Canadian bonds that they had since they're both uh, Canadians, uh, didn't get Dale to move. I finally one day was fed up, picked up the phone, called Dale, offered him ten thousand dollars for an eight-page backup story. He bit, he jumped, he moved. So much of this is like sports and free agency and free agents and trades and drafts, okay? I mean, that, that this is what I love, okay? And and uh, and and that was the, the fun part of that period. And and what, what really drove so much of what I'm gonna get into in this first slice, again, starting in the, at the very, Kind of, kind of the middle, but this is a world without image. And this is, we're going to examine all manner of things. And it's not always going to be, uh, 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 you know, just linear. I'm going to, I'm going to jump a bit because I'm going to start with this because I really want you now some 12 minutes into this to understand exactly where I'm going to be going with this. Computer color, the first computer color, which had a, a higher uh, level of rendering and gradients and just a more advanced way of presenting color. What we call modern computer color was pioneered by a man named Steve Olaf, Ole Optics. He had um, he had done a graphic novel for John Byrne that caught all of our um, that caught all of our attention, and um, and and that that graphic novel was published through uh, through Dark Horse Comics, and I believe it came out maybe 1990. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the graphic novel in question uh, was entirely uh, colored by Mr. Uh, Mr. Mr. Steve Olaf. And it would go on to become the, the kind of the precursor for all the things that, uh, that, that, um, that John Byrne would do with his Next Men graphic novel that was coming out through through Dark Horse, and uh, and when we all collectively picked that up at that time, uh, uh, John John Byrne had, uh, for for lack of a better term, he had entered an an older phase of his um, of his career, and uh, and and that phase of his career, we the, the inks were a little chunkier. We weren't as excited. We had all all the image guys grew up being big John. Big John Byrne fans, and uh, and 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 he, he had gotten to a point with his Marvel work where it was it was a little thicker, um, and it was a little uh, a little more uh, just just less refined, more more uh, just just the, the inking wasn't as crisp. The appeal had been somewhat lost on on, on the rest of us, but uh, but we all jumped at this graphic novel which had a number in it. I'm, I'm not remembering it. It was, you know, 
2021, 20, 20 I, I don't know. And uh, But it was colored by Steve Olaf, and that's the point. And the coloring on that was, like, fantastic. We, we, we were absolutely just literally blown away by... Uh, by the way that John's work looked. Steve Olaf had been around a long time. Steve Olaf colored uh, Jack Kirby's original Captain Victory. Jack Kirby and Captain Victory, by the way, are getting a massive spotlight in future issues because he is, uh, for my money, uh, uh, Jack, Jack, Jack Kirby's Captain Victory was the very first independent comic book that I encountered. Um it, 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 it was by Pacific Comics, which was, which was a brand new comic company. He was the launch comic, and it blew my mind. I could not believe, I could not even begin to believe how, uh, how, how, like, the king of comics was launching his own line through this brand new comic company that I'd never heard of. Um, but I was all over it. And, and so Steve Olaf goes back a long time. He colored the first issue, okay? Um, and, uh, and 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 when John Burns twenty one twelve that's it the the twenty one twelve that is the graphic novel that has the uh, the the coloring by Steve Olaf that's when we all are like man that looks pretty great that looks pretty great John Byrne kind of looked a little more like appealing than he'd ever looked before and it was a result of this amazing uh, color job because John was still drawing and and, and, and inking in, in, in a thicker kind of uh, line than, than we had all be, become accustomed to. But, oh, baby, the work just looked so much more, um, again, uh, uh, appealing on, on every level. The, the pages were, were just, uh, they, they just, they just were rendered and they were more beautiful. And, uh, and, and it caught our eye. And that was because of computer color. Steve Olaf was coloring on his um, computers and he was building up a, a computer coloring house called Oleoptics. Uh, it starts with a palette. Steve Olaf's palette was incredibly um, just, uh, I mean, it was beautiful. It was intoxicating. He, he used the right cool blues, the right hot oranges. I mean, he just really state of the art. I, I, I feel like he was one of the best uh, that, that, that had ever attempted to color comics in and he was doing so traditionally when he did Captain Victory in 1980, 81, 82, early 80s. I'll, I'll, I'll nail that down on that podcast. Uh, but now, coloring this John Byrne graphic novel, it was like, wow. And so, there was also another color house called Digital Chameleon coming up. And that was headed by a man named Laverne Kondernsky. And uh, Digital Chameleon did a lot of the early image comics. We were, I was recommended to them. Um, I thought they did a pretty decent job with the color guides that I provided them. But uh, Todd McFarlane, while we were, myself, Jim Lee, others, getting our books through Digital Chameleon, had thought, had sought out uh, Steve Olaf directly and asked Steve Olaf to be the guy who colors Spawn and bring some of that cool uh, hues and tones and brilliant color palette to Spawn, and, and Spawn looked amazing. Uh, in between issues like Young Youngblood uh, 2 and 3, Todd came to Anaheim, he came to my studio, and he had uh, printouts of his Spawn pages, and he showed them to, to, to myself and to Eric Larson, who was also visiting, and we were blown away. We, uh, we, we, uh, 
they called them thermals. We'll print them out on the thermal paper because we oh, let me see the thermals. Let me th see the thermals. And uh, Spawn looked a cut above. Uh, Todd's work was as good as anything he had done on Spider-Man, but the coloring was amazing. And it was far better than anything that I was experiencing on Youngblood or that Eric was experiencing on Dragon because he was also utilizing Digital Chameleon because they had been recommended to us. Laverne had come out and met with so, so many of us, and Laverne did a really nice job. But Steve Olaf is just a cut above. Um, and 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 it took me till my in between my third and fourth issue to bite down and uh, ask Laverne to color Youngblood. That's why Youngblood 4 looks so amazing. That's why Youngblood 4 is one of my... Youngblood 4 is one of my favorite comics ever. And that was when... I realized I was going to expand my, uh, I was going to expand kind of the variety of the color houses that I was working with because, you know, I absolutely needed to have Steve Olaf on board and, but I had such a volume that Steve couldn't take it on. And, uh, Digital Chameleon was going to continue to do a few books for me, but I just felt like, um, the, 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 the palette at Digital Chameleon wasn't what I was looking for, no matter how I was sending my color guides, they weren't um, translating. Uh, Steve Olaf did the color guides and the what we call color separations. We now just call it digital colorist, okay? It's evolved, but this is how things were happening in 1992. And again, this is extremely technical, but you'll get my point really quickly here, is that I needed to expand, and I realized that I could not be beholden to Steve Olaf. He had a great crew, and he already had taken on Todd. He was doing, uh, going to do Eric's book going forward. Um, he had already got a full plate, and Steve was uh, kind enough to just tell me, Rob, I can't fit you in full time. I can do some some side jobs for you. He did Youngblood Strike File for me next over myself and Jay Lee, and that was really all he could add to his palette at the time. So, so during the holidays in 1992, and by this time, uh, December 1992, you had Youngblood 1, 2, 3, and Youngblood 0. Those were all digital chameleons. Youngblood 4 was already being colored and separated by Oleoptics. Uh, Supreme had come out through digital chameleon. Pretty much all my stuff had come out through digital chameleon. The, the two brigade books that I had put out, or the three brigade books that I had put out so far, were all through digital chameleon. So I had, I had about eight or nine books by the end of the year that had come out uh, uh, all of which had gone through uh, Digital Chameleon, which was located in Canada. And now I'm on the queue, uh, knowing that my early 93, 1993 stuff is going to be shared somewhat with Oleoptics, but they have a limited amount of capacity. Well, during the holidays, my uh, wife's... Uh, she wasn't my wife yet. We weren't even technically uh, dating as and, and definitely not engaged. But uh, starting to get more serious, her cousin, who I had seen for a number of years, named Jason Irwin. You've seen him in a bunch of extreme comic books because we introduced extreme color. And part of that is Jason Irwin. The birth of extreme color is my wife's cousin. He was going to Carnegie Mellon. He was graduating. He was brilliant. He was a big, big brain tech guy, super smart. And I was explaining to him uh, this new process that everyone was pursuing that, that and, and, and I was really hyper-focused on, uh, on, on, on just the, the stuff that Image was doing and what my own peer group was doing. And um, Joe Chido, who was a brilliant painter, was now housed down in 
uh, at Jim Lee's studio. And uh, he was doing brilliant, brilliant painted color guides. I saw Wildcats number one. I saw the painted art on the color guides. And when they were given to uh, Digital Chameleon, the separations just weren't up to snuff. Did, did, did Jim have to approve them to get them out? Yeah. And did he possibly, you know, uh, already think that maybe it wasn't up to snuff and or was maybe hoping that the printing could bring it all together? Because sometimes you can give me a thermal, you can give me a printout. We got FedExed all the printouts of everything, so we did absolutely sign off on everything. And we knew that we were getting some stuff uh, that I'll get into in terms of special effects that not even Ole Optics was giving us. Because the stuff that Digital Chameleon was doing and the stuff that we would do was Macintosh-based. We were absolutely... Uh, advised by Jason Irwin, who would come in and head my entire extreme color. Again, Jason Irwin, the cousin of my wife, Joy Creel at the time, uh, he was very interested in what we were doing. He's in his early 20s, and he says to me, I can come and set all this up for you. The one thing I know is, you know, I know computers. Uh, I have other, other students that I could bring along with me. Now, I can then afford to buy all the computers, to staff a new compute extreme color house because I had the money that I made off all my X-Force royalties. Again, I had, by, by the time 1992 hit, my royalty swell that really started from New Mutants 98 when the, 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 the sales really went off the charts. And we got a giant bump all the way through New Mutants 100, which was a double-sized issue. And I was grabbing the plot. So I got the story royalty, the penciling royalty, and the inking royalty and a creator royalty to boot. Between New Mutants and the middle of X-Force, I made millions of dollars. Have, do, do people make millions of dollars routinely nowadays in comics? Yes. Uh, it, it, are they far and few between? Yes. But again, this is, this is we were just among the first to break this and, 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 and enter this new level uh, in terms of royalties because of this, the sales that, that, that our books had been generating. And be, that created, Jim Lee and I used to talk about it. Jim was the guy who first used the word war chest. These are our war chests. We were investing in the future of our businesses. I had the money to afford this off the money that I had accumulated and that I had saved from New Mutants and X-Force. And now, obviously, Youngblood, because every issue of Youngblood was paying me around a million dollars. You sell a million, you get a dollar a book, you get a million dollars. So... By now, Youngblood, one, two, three, four, zero, they've, they've come and gone. I am now working with my wife's cousin, who is graduating Carnegie Mellon, who came out for spring break of, of his senior year to help set up our computer division. We got bigger space. We moved offices. We gave a dedicated space. Everyone who worked at Extreme Color can tell you that there was a uh, number of desks and stations, six, seven Macintoshes. The Cod Barrett is a system that all uh, that Ole Optics was using, and and that will enter the picture briefly in my studio because I hire away one of uh, Steve Olaf's big uh, superstars in his in his uh, in, in 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 his Ole Optics studio because he had a lot of great guys, but there was one guy named Kiko. I would make Kiko a salary offer that was greater than anything that he was being paid at the time to come and work with Jason because I had sent one of our color guide uh, artists to live at Ole Optics for six months. I pulled a gentleman named Byron Tellman aside 
who had come into the studio via a relationship with Dan Frega, and we had put him together doing color guides. Uh, I felt like Byron's work had a lot of room for improvement, as did every young artist, and called up Steve Olioptics, Steve, <laughs> Steve Olioptics, Steve Olioptics. I called up Steve Olaf and I negotiated for Byron to go live there. I would pay Byron, I would provide for him, but he would go learn at Olioptics. So in essence, I am uh, bankrolling. Uh, now I'm 25 years old. I am bankrolling a, 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 an internship up in Northern California at Olioptics where Steve's setup was so that he could learn not only about color palettes, um, color hues, choices, uh, rendering, lighting. Uh, he could also see the techniques that they were utilizing in terms of their computer graphics, the technical aspect of computer graphics, taking the color guide and applying it to the, 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 the computer to get all of the rendering that we all love so much, all the banding, the rendering. Now, again, I mentioned the Macintosh. The one thing I loved about Digital Chameleon, especially in Youngblood number one, Riptide, that looks like water. The sprinkles of water. And Macintosh could do special effects. The Cod Barrett could not. Wow, I, if I'm losing you on technical expertise, I apologize. But I'm, I am really leaning into the fact that we were ushering in a brand new age. Digital Chameleon existed. Oleoptics existed. They were limited in their ability to generate a whole lot of books. Laverne had done a small amount of books for uh, for DC Comics. I believe Digital Chameleon had been handling the Lobo art on Simon Beasley's comic. That is me generating a memory that I, I'm going to go qualify after I get on this, um, after I finish this podcast. But but in my memory, they were doing some DC books, and one of them, I believe, was the Simon Beasley stuff on Lobo. But again, these guys couldn't. Uh, couldn't, you know, handle everything that was being thrown at them. And, and, and everybody had to experience some growth. So I invested. I was the first. Todd continued to work with Oleoptics. I mean, almost, was it a decade or more? He had no use for setting up his own color operations. He had, you know, he just stayed with his, his Oleoptics um, operation. Eric Larson, uh, hired another couple guys away from Oleoptics the same way that I hired, uh, or maybe they just did his, he had a crew that did his dedicated work. Um, and they were also an offspring of Oleoptics. I took a kid from Carnegie Mellon who had never done comic books, leaned on his, leaned heavily on his technical expertise and created with some students that he brought along with him from Carnegie Mellon after they graduated. And then he and I would sit we put an ad out, we put the word out, we got people who came in and they interviewed, all beginners. We started a, com a coloring, a computer coloring division from scratch and we did it with the financing that I was able to lean into uh, the computers, the technician, the network, all of it, very expensive. Uh, but Jason knew how to set all of it up. He got our network set up, he got the technical expertise, he started coloring himself, he hired even better colorists. Eventually, we became the color house of Don Skinner and Andy Troy. And along the way, what I call the second phase of computer coloring, we got a gentleman named Drew Posada. Drew has long, uh, he, he passed, I believe, over a decade ago. Uh, he came to us from Top Cow from a connection with Brian Haberlin, who really shepherded in the second level, the second wave of computer coloring. I... I 
firmly place at the feet of Brian Haberlin because what happened with Top Cow is their palette suddenly became the most enticing palette and everyone was chasing that. Drew had come from Brian Haberlin, came up, offered his services to us, named his price in terms of salary and, and Drew came on board and Drew eventually not only did interiors but he would polish our covers and he would act, he would take everyone else's work with the acknowledgement. He was our basically our cover um our in-house color kind of uh, cover editor in the same way that you read that John Romita Sr., while he was the uh, cover artist or the art, uh, you know, the, the in-house art manager at Marvel Comics would redraw characters' faces on covers. My, myself and Todd McFarlane, we, we were redrawn in the 90s by John Romita Sr. Uh, in the same way that he did that, we had a, to, 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 to give it a certain polish and a certain style that he believed was within his purview his his you know um part of his 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 responsibilities we had drew do the same thing for our covers and and it upped the ante but none of it is possible unless there's a kid who decides he's going to invest in creating from scratch with no idea of even how to operate a computer i don't believe i even clicked a computer button uh and hit send on something until 1996. Three years prior, I have hired my wife's cousin, Jason Irwin, Carnegie Mellon graduate, to come into my system, to come into my operations, and set up extreme color. Be, to, to, to take on what would be the regular Brigade series, Blood Strike series. We, we still couldn't handle it all because we're beginners. And there was a company called In Color, I believe it's called In Color, Clydine Nee, uh, sister of John Nee, who was running Wildstorm at the time. She took a number of our books. So so we were still farming out there, and we still had to farm some stuff out to, 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 to Digital Chameleon and occasionally only optics. But we were focused, and we eventually got to the point where we had about 16 full-time, round the clock. We had three shifts at Extreme. We had the day shift, we had the evening shift, and then we had the midnight uh, you know, the overnight shift and, uh, and that paid extra. Not every, it wasn't for everybody, but some people loved it because of the extra kick in their paychecks. I saw a lot of great faces come and go. We had, uh, we had all manner, uh, of, 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 I mean, extreme color. I think at one point was half women, half men. Um, we had great talent, but again, some serious beginners. There was a guy, a friend of Eric Stevenson, who is now a, publisher and partner in Image Comics. He had a friend named Ron. Ron auditioned for the job. He was rough, but we knew, just like everybody else, we could get him to where he needed to be if he was willing to put in the time and the effort. And it was a good check. He drove in every day. He hit the clock. He did his work. He went home. Extreme Color had three shifts. Uh, I, I want to say 16, 18 different people making their way through. That place was always lively. Why have I dedicated all this time to this? If I don't create extreme color i do not i don't get the amount of books that i get out to you guys but more importantly we don't inhale this many color talents chris leitner who would go on aaron lucen to create liquid an offshoot of extreme um not i didn't finance it it's not because of me but they got their start with me in the same way that i got my start at hawk and dove drew would go on to do other books outside of us. Uh, extreme Color 
uh, that department, that entire division was me having a conversation with my wife's cousin, college senior tech head who knew exactly how to uh, take my investment and make it soar. And by getting that extreme color house, we furthered the development of computer color. That got Jim Lee to then invest and uh, follow our path and do Wildstorm Color. Malibu, up the, up the freeway in Los Angeles, created Malibu Color. Marvel Comics would not start utilizing computer color until almost three years after Image had really pioneered it. Again, we didn't start it, but we refined it 100%. We absolutely 100% refined it. And we expanded it. And we made it commonplace. And all of those technical artists... Uh, were, were, were financed by the vision of a young investor, me. I was the young investor. If you take me out of this equation, if I don't do Image Comics, this is what a world without Image Comics looks like. Do we not get to advanced computer color graphics for another five years, another six years? Is it a decade? These are worthwhile questions. Look at the market leader. Look at Marvel Comics who has never been unseated during my time in comics as the number one publisher on a regular basis. I don't count the three months the DC-52 unseated them. For years, Marvel has been the tops. We unseated DC Comics twice in our early Image Comics era. But I don't believe we've ever been known as the number two comic company. Marvel is the number one comic company. They did not move on integrating computer color until after... Wildstorm Color, Malibu Color, Extreme Color, Oli Optics, Digital Chameleon had all become forces in the comics industry. We uh, took over uh, the coloring. One of the contracts we got was we, uh, Extreme Color got the contract to co color all the covers of the Bone reprints. We were actively at some at one point, um, by Jeff Smith's award-winning acclaimed Bone comic book, which we started putting through images reprints. And uh, we were coloring all those covers. So Extreme Color was, was moving out. Andy Troy would go on eventually in the late 90s to do a number of different Top Cow books as well as Marvel Comics. Uh, obviously, Aaron Lucen and Christian Leitner, who got their start at Marvel Comics, would go on to, to create Liquid and become maybe the top, uh, easily the most... Um, uh, 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 I think favored coloring company for about a three-year stretch. Battle Chasers, the X-Men. They launched in 1996 at the same time that I was doing um, Heroes Reborn. Uh, Christian Leitner had asked me to finance his operation and, and create a rival color house called Extreme 2. I couldn't do that because that would undermine all of the people who were in the Extreme Color department in my dedicated offices who were working in three different shifts. They would then show up to me one day and go, wait, so... There's another guy who's off-site who doesn't have to come in, and I took that chance. And I and and uh, it was a sh it was it was me being loyal to the people who were who were working for me. Chris had every right to ask for this, and obviously he found his own way and became uh, extremely uh, bankable, commercial, and like I said, probably for a three-year period, the top color house. Uh, him himself and Aaron Lucen, they couldn't take on a lot, but what they did take on, they really shined on. Those guys got their start at Extreme Color. Uh, uh, again, Don Skinner, um, um, some, some of the other colors that worked for us went on to color ample amounts of books for Marvel and DC. Tanya and Richard Horry 
uh, became, uh, Tanya got her start in extreme colors. She would color Superman for umpteen years, um, many DC comics. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, got a regular, probably worked at DC for a decade after I had closed down the extreme uh, color department after its kind of six-year kind of inception and birth. What happened to the extreme color department was that each of these guys became, we didn't need them all in-house anymore. And being in-house caused caused me more in terms of employee taxes and people wanted to work at their houses. They wanted to have their the, the freedom to wake up, get their coffee, sit at their own station, not punch a clock in someone else's studio. And that's exactly what the business became and what the business it kind of continues to be. But it started with an investment again of a workforce that would expand and create uh, a bunch more jobs, but a bunch more influence. And um, again, by my in, investing in extreme color, Wildstorm color happened. Top Cow Color happened, Malibu Color happened, and we are in this business. You have to have somebody who tips it over. Digital Chameleon and Oli Optics were the two color houses when we started. Again, uh, uh, Extreme Color uh, was was another uh, domino that was necessary in getting us to a place where we now have routine, regular. Uh, Wildstorm Color and Top Cow Color have a ton of amazing colorists themselves. I, I, I'm honing on the guys and the, the men and women that worked for me, uh, uh, you know, because they were the faces that I saw and the people that I interacted with on a regular basis. A world without image comics looks very different. Let's get to the nitty gritty. Let's get to the partners themselves. What is the landscape? What is the landscape of the business in 1991? I'll tell you. Todd McFarlane has, for all intents and purposes, he has retired. Uh, his Spider-Man issue that crossed over with uh, X-Force um, was his 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 last last book. He 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 um, collected with me the idea to do this crossover book that he would then say goodbye with, and uh, Spider-Man sixteen would find Todd uh, moving you know off into the sunset. And, uh, and, and, and Spider-Man, uh, 16, uh, arrived in, in, in your hands, I believe in the fall of 1991 spawn would come out in the summer of 1992. By the time Spider-Man 16 arrives in your hands in, uh, the fall, August or September of 1991, Todd has already been retired. He had handed that book in six weeks prior. He's having a baby. He's in a young marriage. He's obviously made um, millions off Spider-Man. The, the launch of Spider-Man, 3 million copies, had lodged him at number one. So what was he thinking? What was he doing? While Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld are battling it out for dominance uh, uh, in the X-Men office and trying to stay ahead of the game, he has taken the entire year off. He deserved it. He earned it. This is not a judgment call. This is exactly what happened during that time. And I have detailed... Uh, I think it, it, it in in in, in uh, maybe the, the the Todd's Toys uh, episode that Todd had actually set off to try and launch a trading card company, and we've covered that in a couple different podcasts. With he was trying to compete with Skybox and Upper Deck and create a dedicated hockey uh, trading card company called Front Row. And so many so many of you guys have heard me say, you know, his slogan, and he was so proud of. It. He was so proud of it. And I remember like he would just with that just twinkle in his eye, 
Why sit in the upper deck when you can sit in the front row? Uh, he loved hitting that front row. Front row cards. I still have my uncut sheet. Todd printed up a whole bunch of them. He bought, uh, you know, photographs of his um, uh, favorite hockey players, Wayne Gretzky, uh, Brett Hall. He did Todd McFarlane caricatures of them on the back. He thought he could combine his comic book uh, popularity with hockey's rising popularity. And he went all the way to the NHL to get that license, and he was denied. And it was hard for him. I, w I felt bad. He was truly crushed briefly. He didn't have time to linger. But his path, option number one, was what if the NF NHL had granted him that license? I can tell you right now, he's out of comics. He, he wanted to be in the sports uh, uh, the sports business. He wanted to, his passion was sports. If you ever g caught Todd between 1987, 88, 89, 90, in the early years that I knew him, he would want, he wanted to jaw your ear off about sports. Baseball and hockey were his obsessions. Basketball and football were my obsessions. So we didn't always have a lot of crossover. I learned a lot about his passion for hockey. He learned a lot about my passion for basketball and football. And, uh, Todd, famously for a comic book creator card, um, uh, uh, took his shirt off and, uh, you know, I forget Jose's last name, but, but create, uh, uh, imitated one of the Oakland A's, uh, uh, you know, baseball trading cards where he had his shirt off swinging the bat. Todd was very much a sport head and this, uh, dream that he, uh, was pursuing when I would talk to him in the year that he had off, uh, he would explain to me, "Oh, you gotta find, you gotta, you, you gotta find the photographers. You gotta make sure that they have the license to sell you that picture. You then gotta pay a per." He was like, "Can you believe what these photographers are getting, bud? The money, the money these photographers get for the hockey picks." Okay, so he was in it, man. He was totally in it. He he was trying to get this launched. My uncut sheet is one of the pride and joys. I pulled it out. I've shown it to guys like Robert Kirkman and other people who they go, oh my gosh, this exists. Front row, why sit in the upper deck when you can sit in the front row? Um, again, the uncut sheets exist. He went all the way to the NHL. I was really excited for him. It didn't happen. If that happens, there is no spawn. And um, Image Comics looks a lot different. But they said no. So then Todd came back to the conversation knowing that I had, the it, I had the itch. Where was I during this time? 1991. What do you do when all your dreams have come true? Okay? You're 23 years old. You got into comics. Your first book was a fan favorite, which got you called by the X-Men editor who invited you into the X-Men office, who said, do you want to fix up this New Mutants Um Franchise, of which I took the challenge. Uh, Jim Lee, at the same time, had gone from Alpha Flight to Punisher, to Punisher War Journal specifically, to the X-Men. And he had also fulfilled his dreams. He had three guys in Todd, Jim, and Rob who had achieved all their dreams in a relatively short period, or a, re a relatively short span. For Todd, it had been about seven years. And for uh, Jim, it had been about five. And for me, good God, I, I mean, I'd done it in, in, in about a four-year span. And I was, uh, we were all pondering what was next. 
you know, Jim got on, Jim got on the X-Men, uh, wanted to, he knew what was wrong with the X-Men. We've talked about this. Chris Claremont, god of comic book writing, my favorite writer, you know, dedicated writer in the history of comics. That 15-year, that incredible stint on the X-Men is one for the ages. But he had visibly grown tired. He did not want to do uh, stories really that were as action-driven as the market was demanding at the time. He was really, really more into um, all of the female cast. He, the female cast was growing exponentially. And our favorite characters weren't doing what they we used to love to see them do because he had already done it. And he didn't want to kind of revisit uh, actions and storylines that he had already, you know, he, he created in the first place. And you can understand why. But somebody was coming on the X-Men, they wanted Wolverine to pop all six claws and to jump into the Hellfire Club and to cut them up and slice them and dice them. And I've covered that Jim's did what any good giant John Byrne, Terry Austin, Chris Claremont era fan would do. He went and did a sequel to all those stories, The Savage Land. He did The Hellfire Club. He did Magneto, okay? He uh, had the Imperial Guard. It was the greatest hits of the John Byrne, Terry Austin run, and, and, and yet that run was now over a decade old and so we were fresh for it. We wanted it. Jim brought crazy energy to that, but a conflicting vision with what Chris had. And when he had Chris uh, demoted to scripter over his story plots, because Jim wanted the story reigns, Chris left. In the same way that um, history will report that I ran off Louise Simonson, um, look, these characters were generated by me and they deserved to have the guy who created them, you know, Put the spotlight on them. And, and again, I always flip it. If, if you really believe that Louise Simonson created Cable, then, then why was she removed as quickly as she was? Because she did not create Cable, period. End of story. Uh, just like Jim had Chris removed, Louise was removed, Frank Miller had Roger Stern removed. Um, I mean, Roger McKenzie. Roger McKenzie. Apologies. Apologies, Roger McKenzie on, Frank Mil on, on Daredevil. There is an aggression that each of us had. Uh, Todd McFarlane shed David Michelini. And took on Spider-Man by himself. Uh, Eric Larson would then do the same. And we were all growing past working with these different writers. And they were removed because it was our visions that were driving the books. To th The reason this is uncomfortable when I say it is because the comics industry would have you believe that some of the collaborations, some of these collaborations are more meaningful than, than, than you believe they are. And they're not. Um, as I've said, had, had someone scripted Daredevil's Frank Miller's first appearance of Elektra, uh, his first issue of Daredevil, had someone done the script, they would, even though it was a blueprint and the story and all the beats were by Frank, they would have, per Marvel's rules of the late 80s, they would have a co-creator credit of Elektra, which I've read it from all sides, and the bottom line is, if you work at Marvel, you know what you get. And as time goes by, I have seen people miscredit people. I had the good pleasure of being at the Spider-Man No Way Home premiere. Um, I, sh I did an entire podcast telling you how excited I was, signing off for the final year, you know, about a month ago, saying goodbye to 2021. And and when I shared um, my pictures that I had from, from the premiere night, the red carpet, all the fun with my daughter, it was super fun. I had a guy go, that's nice you were there, but what about Spider-Man creators? What Spider-Man creators were there? I said, they're dead. The Spider-Man creators are dead. Stan Lee and Steve Ditko have moved on. They are no longer with us. 
What I think that person was saying is, why weren't people who were working on Spider-Man? Look, let's cut to the chase. Steve and Stan created Sandman, Goblin. Uh, they, 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 they created Doc Ock. They created Peter Parker. Okay? Uh, they created these characters. Electro, that you saw in No Way Home. Three iterations of Spider-Man, all still called Peter Parker, all still in the domain of Stanley and Steve Ditko. The Spider-Man creators, the true creators, were not there. They were not there because they have moved on. So, what Spider-Man creators were represented? Um, yeah, they're dead. The Spider-Man creators are dead. I, I mean that fervently. I mean that absolutely in every capacity. Spider-Man and all of those characters are a product of the magic, the electricity that was provided by two uh, gentlemen who uh, had their credits established over the years. And and uh, again, in, in the New World Order, had someone scripted over Walt Simonson's first issue of Thor, they would be the co-creator of Beta Ray Bill. So there, this is how things were breaking down at the time. We had achieved our dreams. We had pushed our visions forward. We had punched through. We had made... 7 million, 5 million, 3 million sales, okay? And we were all wondering, what the heck were we gonna do next? Well, Todd uh, had the front row dream not pan out. So he circled back and he talked to his buddy Rob. And Rob had already huddled with Eric Larson and Jim Valentino about doing an independent project, maybe an independent line of books with Malibu Comics. The original scheme for myself and Eric Larson, was that we were going to, we were going to split a book. We were going to split a book. Um, and and Eric had come with me and stayed with me following, uh, I believe, the 1990 San Diego Comic Con. I was so excited. Uh, he drove back to, with me to, San, to, to, to Southern California. My sister had a really cool condo. Um, I just totally dug it in downtown Fullerton. She was going to be gone for a week. I, I, I said, oh, Eric, you can stay with me. I'm going to have the whole place to myself. Unfortunately, it was 100 110,000 degrees uh, after San Diego that summer. My sister's air conditioning was broke. It was a sauna. Eric and I had long walks into Fullerton. We walked around. We went to eat. We shared ideas. We drew. We just generally hung out. We talked about the future, what we could do together. And we had really, um, one of the things that we had bounced around was that we would share a title, a shared title. Half Eric, half me. We'd flip the front and the back depending on the week. It was it was a way to expand what we were doing. We weren't completely ready to abandon what we were doing uh, with Marvel or DC yet, but we were scratching that itch. We went so far as to have a lunch with David Olbrich, who was the um, uh, you know publisher at Malibu Comics, and meet with him and talk to him about the opportunities uh, because I wanted somebody that I knew that I could shake hands with, that I could drive to their offices. Well, when we talked to Todd about this, and he knew how serious we were. And I said, well, I'm going to go ahead and 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 kind of do my own thing while you guys figure out what you're doing next. Because there, there really wasn't, beyond what Jim, Eric, and myself had talked about, which was creating kind of a consortium to do independent superheroes, there hadn't been a tried and true kind of, you know, uh, a game plan, a, a blueprint put forward. I had told Todd that I was definitely going to be leaving X-Force because... At that point, I had done 28 some issues and my focus, I did not want to do the new crossover that my editors were talking about, which you, you would all know as the Executioner's Song, even though it was mired in 
my characters with Cable and Strife and their dynamic and all of that, everything that I had introduced when I took over the New Mutants. I did not want to get together and produce that, and, and I was not in a collaborative frame. That doesn't mean I'm a bad person. That just means that I do better when I figure stuff out on my own. And, uh, and I think there are many folks just like me. I have never sent, I, I went to one story retreat right before Image launched. We hadn't made our removal from Marvel permanent yet, but I went to one to know that I didn't ever want to go to another one. And uh, it was it, at that meeting that Jim and myself, Jim Lee, myself and Mark Silvestri were at in the winter of 1992, uh, it was all sorts of uh, different writers and scripters raising their voice, uh, pitching to Bob Harris and the editorial staff of how, you know, their ideas. And I just didn't want to argue and fight. And I just wanted to kind of do my own thing. I felt like I'd earned it. Jim felt like he'd earned it. Todd felt like he earned it. We all felt like we had earned our way. But what do you do? Your dreams had all come true. All of your dreams had come true. I've told you in separate uh, podcasts, the Youngblood Launch Podcast. I think it's all called Youngblood. Uh, I talked about how I had done the math, how I could make money on my own. I didn't need to sell a million copies. It's it's different when you get five cents a copy as a royalty as opposed to the full dollar. And I had figured out, hey man, if I only sell 100,000 units, you know, I mean, I can't believe I'm telling you this with a straight face, but can, you have to consider the time I'm, I'm, I'm discussing. I'm literally making hundreds of thousands of dollars as is Jim uh, off our X-Men products and doing it on a very, you know, basically four cents a book. Uh, I figured, well, if I get a full dollar an issue and I sell a hundred thousand, that's why when people go, oh, they knew it was going to be successful. No, not this guy. I'm the launch image comic. I am the first image comic. I announced an image comics project months before image was even a thing with the executioners and my full page ad and the comics buyer's guide. I had the image logo written out. I named the company. We struggled. Todd did not want to call it Image Comics. He didn't want it. He, 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 he wanted to call it King Comics or King Kirby Comics. And we all felt that that was a little too personal. And what, you know, other than the acknowledgement to the King of Comics and kind of the in-the-moment grandeur of that, are we paying the Kirbys, um, you know, for that license? How do they not sue us if they don't want us to do it? If they say, no, we don't want it to be called Kirby Comics or Jack owns it. Like, it just became complicated if we went that route. I leaned into image comics. We were known for our images. I, I leaned into it. I had a logo I had drawn on a napkin in a greasy burger joint that we loved that Marat and I, Marat, my assistant, had eaten at all the time called Brea's Best. And with a blue ballpoint pen, I chiseled out that logo. We made plans. I sent in a check. I bought a full-page ad. It heralded the coming of the executioners. It came out in 1991, almost a full year before Youngblood 1 would hit your hands, would hit the stands. And uh, so plans were afoot. I was going to leave the X office with the cable miniseries. I have some character sheets, some notes, a bunch of stuff that I had created. The cable miniseries, giving cable his own shining spotlight, would serve two purposes for me. It would give me another number one, another bite at the apple, another big spotlight. And uh, kind of put Cable, give him the, the solo spotlight that he deserved. He'd earned it. He had been the face of turning everything around. But without D Cable, you don't get Deadpool. You don't get Domino, Shatterstar. You don't get Feral. You don't get the MLF. You don't get Strife. Okay, you don't get Kane, Grizzly, you know, the, the six-pack. So I figured, and, and I had a really great story for that. 
in this time travel story that told the past and present. And I had depicted Cable uh, in, a, in a few further back in history timelines, scenarios that would have been fun that were jettisoned when they just kind of took my ba- bare basic plot and made the Cable miniseries that you got with John Romita Jr. But that was my big pivot. I was going to go uh, around X-Force 1516, of which you would have met a character named John Prophet, a cop from the future who is coming back to arrest Cable, okay? These were my plans. This is what I was going to do. But beyond that, I was exiting. And I was going to put my my efforts into an independent project, whether everybody was with me or whether they weren't with me. And uh, when Todd heard of this, he pitched me on maybe we should go to DC. Maybe the independent thing is one move away. And he really wanted to do Batman. He had done a couple issues of Batman that people really loved. And there's no doubt in my mind that had he done Batman, it would have been humongous, tremendous, massive. Well, then Jim Lee hears of this. And Jim Lee says, well, I should probably pivot. Because what does Jim do next? Because what you're doing now, once you've lost $7 million, launched $7 million, once you've launched $5 million, you're in the diminishing returns business. You are doing, uh, your, 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 your sales are down every issue. X-Force 2, you guys, sold 1.4 million copies. Like, it didn't have any trading cards. It didn't have any poly bags. It was just a comic book, just like New Mutants 100 sold a million copies with no gimmicks. X-Force, five cards, five million sales, okay? Um, but it's like, what was our next act? I had had a brief discussion with an editor about the Fantastic Four, but it just felt like the wrong move for me. It felt like a move backwards. When Marvel called and told me they were doing toys based on all my X-Force stuff and it was going to be the second series, I've covered this before, that electrified me. That, that, that energizes me. To this day, I know that when I drew up the ad for this new group called the Executioners, Why'd you do the executions, Rob? Were you ripping off the X-Men? John Byrne, who, if you've listened to this podcast, had him on a pedestal, kind of somebody I worship, kind of somebody I look up to, was launching a book from Dark Horse called Next Men. And it had a prominent X in it. And the whole industry watched because I think Marvel got involved and said, you can't do this. And I was like, Next Men is the best like spinoff title ever because it sounds like an X-Book. Next Men. John Byrne, super clever. Kudos to you, sir. Next Men was a badass, amazing title. I think he had to call it John Byrne's Next Men not to get sued. Well, I figured I'll do Executioners. John Byrne, greatest work that he's beloved for is X-Men. I'll just do this new band of characters. People go, man, you're ripping off Cable and Farrell. And yeah, I'm ripping off myself. That's what you're looking at because those characters didn't exist prior to me. I mean, just let's stay in the zone here. Stay in the lane. I do the executioners. Wild Man was out in front. He was more of a, a character you hadn't seen. Uh, a cross between kind of the beast and feral. Somebody I hadn't drawn. I had a mute giant. Uh, I had a woman with an axe and I had a cable looking guy because if you drew a guy with guns in any sort of facial scarring at that point, it was obvious he was going to be somewhat connected to cable. Um, the, uh, the executioner's ad that I sent into the CBG and had typeset and, and hired a guy to do the, you know, 
design work and sent my check in my my check for whatever it was a hundred bucks couple hundred bucks to the comic book buyer's guide i remember when i put it all in the mail there was no computers you didn't hit send on any single file this was all via the mail the ad the file um the the, the blueprint and i mail i'm like wow this won't appear for four weeks but the day it appeared, it shook the world. But that is your first appearance mention any time of image, image comics, image uh, uh, anything outside of what I was doing at Marvel. And it clearly garnered a ton of attention. It uh, The entire world was kind of set on their ass. Uh, I was threatened, um, just shy of harassed. Um, um, pe people were, were very upset. Also, people were very electrified. But my, I think by doing that, I look back and I remember, I just knew I had to do it because then that set about a path. Having that ad printed in that giant newspaper for everybody to see, a big announcement. Because when you folded out the, the, the comic books buyer's guide to the full size, it's, like it's like a folded newspaper sold in comic book stores or delivered to your house if you had a subscription. But comic book, comic book stores got them every week. The comic book buyer's guide was a weekly newspaper covering the comic book industry it always had a price guide in the back which would justify extra pages interviews industry news all this stuff it was people lived and died by the comic book buyer's guide maggie thompson uh, the thompsons had created quite a juggernaut by having that ad in there boom and i didn't tell anybody i told no one that ad appears everyone goes oh life has other plans and that sets my path uh that, that really set my path and I really wasn't looking to, uh, to, to, to alter, alter from it. The more I got closer to doing the executioners, the more that I realized it shouldn't be something that so openly looks and feels like X-Force, even though it was more interplanetary, it was, it was more galactic. That's why I pivoted back to an original concept that I had pitched a publisher called Megaton Comics in 1987 called Youngblood. I went back to Youngblood, but I reformatted Youngblood for a hot minute when Todd came up with this Batman idea. So I've always told you guys, I don't like Batman. I don't think there's anything I can say to you more like adamantly about the fact that I didn't want to do Batman. Those two guys went in seeking Batman and instead of being a three-headed Batman beast, I decided, well, I love the Titans. I took one of my Youngblood drawings. I altered it slightly, changed hairstyles to make it a Youngblood submission. DC... For the record, wanted to do all of them, but wanted to do them very cheaply with no guarantees. I've covered this before. The, the dollars that we gave, I know what I asked for. I was not privy to what Jim and Todd asked for. I believe they asked for more than I did, but I asked for a simple six-figure guarantee for the first year of issues, and Paul Levitz told me, no, we don't make those kind of deals with anyone. I don't know if it was we don't make those kind of deals with you, Rob Liefeld, or I can just say anyone to you and justify it. But the bottom line is they they turned all of us down. They turned each and every one of us down. Todd didn't get the Batman deal he wanted. Jim didn't get the Batman deal he wanted. And I didn't get the Titans deal, which was easy for me to then immediately pivot, get that to Malibu, solicit that, make that my launch book that was supposed to come out February of 1992. Yes, Youngblood was late. Does it matter now, 30 years ago? No. All that it matters is that it came out on April, in April. But uh, at that point, DC did not meet our demands. Uh, I believe in a world where my sales don't come in as strong as they did for Youngblood, that Todd does Batman. There is no spawn. Todd, Todd, didn't, 
Todd didn't want to do Spawn after the sports card market didn't accept his proposal. He pivoted immediately to Batman, and I'll tell you why, because he wanted to be on top. He exited Spider-Man and took a year off because he didn't want to be looking up at Jim Lee and the X-Men as the number one book. Remember, Todd told me that X-Force would sell a million copies if I was lucky. I think Todd had a period where he was not reading the market as well as he once did. He was tired. He had been doing Spider-Man for three, four years. He had, you know, revolutionized Spider-Man and uh, wanted to take a break, but he was literally very conscientious of the fact that for the entire year he put out Spider-Man, I think he was number one almost every month with that adjectiveless Spider-Man book from its 3 million launch. But now he was going to be looking up at Jim, and that's not something he wanted to do, so he left. Upon coming back, he thought Batman would be the vehicle, but he's hearing another aggression coming. More Eric and Valentino and I are all in. We are going to go. They are going to follow. They are going to quit a little later than me, or they're going to add it to their plates. As Eric Larson told you on this podcast in the Eric Larson interview from a few months ago, the Eric Larson episode of Observations, Eric said he had a Lobo uh, gig planned. He may have gone and done Nova. He had all sorts of alternative um, plans. Lobo was red hot. He would have stepped right in there, and I believe Lobo fans would have lost their minds had Eric Larson done Lobo. But you definitely, you definitely were about to get Todd McFarlane's Batman. And you are not going to get Jim Lee's Batman, and I'll tell you why. Right before Jim committed to sign with Image Comics, as I've told you guys over the years, and, and over a number of different podcasts, Marvel flew out to meet Jim. They viewed Todd and I as lunatics and told us as such. They were glad to be rid of us. This is after Jim and Todd and myself go in to meet with Terry Stewart, the president of Marvel Comics. Per Todd's direction, he wanted us to have a face-to-face and tell them, your three biggest talents are leaving and do it face-to-face. At that point, Terry Stewart pivoted, said, what if we give you the Epic Comic label? None of us bid on that. We didn't want to go down that road. We felt the Epic Comic label meant something different, and we would never change the trajectory of what it meant. We wanted something that we had that was our own. After that meeting, after informing them that they were leaving, a contingency of what I understand was Carl Potts, Bob Harris, and Terry Stewart, perhaps Tom DeFalco, met with Jim Lee before Wildcats launched, attempting to talk him out of doing Wildcats, of doing Image Comics. They offered him a greater position, more money, more influence. And uh, I think Jim could not resist the fact that he knew how well we were going to do and didn't want to be the guy that stayed behind, didn't want to be the guy that missed out. And God bless him, that was a, the right call. But I know Jim was struggling the whole time. He talked to Todd and I repeatedly about how nervous he was. He would tell us, I'm very nervous. He married, Todd married, Eric Larson married. Mark Silvestri, long-term relationship. Jim Valentino married with multiple children. Uh, I think I think at that time, five kids. Uh, three from Diane's previous marriage and two um, that, that, that Jim and Diane had sired. Okay, so I am single, ready to mingle. I am dating, but I am not committed. I don't have that same um, uh, more mature outlook than they did. I was the perfect guy to go sit and test the frying pan and the guinea pig. I was the guy running hot, hottest, running, you know, uh, the fastest out the gate. Jim Lee, 100%, told us they had a baby on the way. Todd had just had his daughter, 
um, was married, but Jim, Jim kept telling us the insurance, the package, I'm, I'm so covered by Marvel and Todd and I would say you are going to have millions of dollars from X-Men. It, it just hasn't arrived. The, the checks came 10 months later, you guys. I didn't get paid an X-Force one until 10 months later. Marvel had a 10 month later. There was no good reason because they got paid within 60 days, but then they held on to that, <laughs> that money and accumulated that extra, um, you know, accrual, uh, and then eventually would, for, you know, made the 10 month plan. We had no control. We just accepted it. When that check came, when those checks came, they were seven figure checks. They were significant. They were life changing, but we said, you can buy your own insurance. You can buy your own insurance. The point of why I'm telling you this is where Jim's head was at. Jim was concerned about his family. Jim was concerned about the future. He was concerned. I mean, I don't, I still don't understand it because Jim was so insanely popular. I don't understand why he was. We were all so, um, you know, doing so well and, and really had our fingers on the pulse. So I didn't understand Jim's hesitancy. In the scenario where Todd does Batman and Rob goes off and does his lonely independent comic, Jim is met full force by Marvel Comics who convince him not to leave. And do I and I believe Jim Lee becomes, he was already wielding a lot of influence on every book outside of X-Force. He was influencing X-Factor. He was influencing his own X-Men book. He was influenced the, influencing the existing X-Men book. I, be, I believe he becomes kind of a de facto kind of X-Men, uh, 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 you know, uh, producer, you know, overall producer guy that, that, that helmed the books alongside Bob Harris. Maybe he did all the covers. Whatever they did, whatever special title and money they threw at him, Jim would not have made it to Batman. Marvel would have gotten in front of that. And the same hesitancies that Jim felt, and really it was, what if these guys smash it and do as well as they did, which we did, by the way. Again, great choice by Jim. But he was very hesitant. There was the reason he was the last guy to commit. He just wasn't sold. Does he do Batman? No. The world without Image Comics finds Jim Lee taking over the X-Men office and helming it towards a brand new destiny. And what that means is Adam or Andy Kubert don't get one of his books because part of that deal is he's going to stay on the X-Men. See how this is starting to fall? Um, Mark Silvestri stays in the X-Men office too. Mark does not leave. He does not go. He he was the second to the last guy. He had to be brought on board by a hard, hard pitch by Todd McFarlane. Hard pitch. What was driving everything was that, well, I can do better than Rob. Rob's initial figures of half a million, I can do better than. Image Comics as a consortium, once we aligned, we be, we blew up and the numbers just became insane. So 500,000 turned into a million because the industry and the speculation on what we were doing had just become outrageous. And, 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 and Mark had to be closed at the very end of, of, of the business kind of, of, of doing image. He kind of came in right before Jim because Jim was the long holdout. Jim never in a world without image comics where, where, where either if, 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 if sit in the front row cards, doesn't get the green light. Todd does Batman. Rob does his cable miniseries that pivots to his independent work on his own. And Jim Lee stays with the X office. Uh, and, and that is the immediate scenario of how I believe things played out in that early phase of, of the formation of image comics in this, in this idea of a world without image comics. Certainly there is no computer color revolution. And perhaps that is delayed by years. 
each move that was on the table that gets the green light. I mean, let's go to the place that Paul Levitt says, I'll give you all you want. I'll give each of you. You get your deal on Titans. You get your deal on Batman. And you get your deal on Batman to Todd, Jim, and Rob. That is a complete swerve. But again, I believe Marvel gets in the middle of that and removes uh, removes Jim from that equation. And I was uneasy about the Titans because I just didn't believe DC would show me the long-term commitment uh, and the spotlight and the marketing that would get me to where I needed to go. But that is where the balls were in the air at that moment in time in the early stages, late 1991, early 1992. So in a world without image comics, why is so much of the focus on Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld? And of course, my Rob Liefeld, it's weird, but I was there. I was a player. It's like being on one of those championship Bulls teams or Lakers teams and acting like, you know, like if I was on that squad, I have knowledge of what was going on in that squad, in that locker room, in that business, uh, uh, in the NBA, certainly what was going on. And, 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 and so, so why is the focus on McFarlane and Jim Lee and Robin? I'm going to tell you why it gets back to those millions of sales and the money and the bankrolls. And as I said, the, the, the term Jim Lee used so often, the war chests, that they created, they gave us options. And when you are an artist and you are creating, whether you're a writer, whether you're an, whether you're, you draw, uh, whether you're a musician, the 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 the, the royalties, an actor, that the royalties from your art, and and if you can get to a certain point where you can, you know, weigh your decisions more carefully, you do and you will, and we did. And and the thing is that that it was very important because we're very Alpha. There's three alphas. Jim is an alpha. I'm an alpha. Todd's an alpha. So if Todd does not, is not wooed to go to Spawn because plan A and plan B did not come together, and I do maintain Spawn was absolutely, at that time, in 1991 through 1992, it was a plan, it was a plan C. Sports cards didn't work out. Batman, they didn't give him or Jim, or myself, uh, and I've always, I've always said Paul Levitz is kind of the godfather of one of the greatest what-ifs of all time, because had he said yes to us, I think we were all ready to go because it was safe. It was safe. But for this uh, 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 scenario, again, I'm just trying to systematically take everyone through where, where everyone was at, at at that point in 1991, 1992, the hesitations, everyone, why Jim was so nervous about coming on board. Uh, Jim, Todd's hesitancy because he really didn't dabble or have a taste for independent comics. Once it worked, he leaned all the way in, 100%. But it's easy to see that if he had been given what he wanted on Batman or if he circled back as a solo act once myself and Jim had shed, then... He does Batman, and that book is huge. Let's make no doubt. Batman has a 6 to 7 to 8 to 9 to 10 to 11, 12, at least a year Todd does of Batman. And you go, but Rob, why doesn't he do Spawn again? Prior to us striking off, Todd thought it was advantageous. Jim actually did two illustrations for this at this point. Jim had... Two beautiful, some of my favorite Batmans he's ever drawn. 
he did around this time in order to present like this is my my image and uh, of Batman and, and trust me Batman had been rejuvenated by Frank Miller it was a big deal the 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 I, I covered in like the 90s and what was going on with marketing and books and all that stuff I had covered in depth that the Legends of the Dark Knight which which launched with different colored like cardstock covers no art purple green orange, red, blue, whatever colors they were, they each generated significant sales. This is why Marvel then launched Spider-Man a year later and did the multiple versions uh, in order to drum up their three million. Because it was like, wow, if, if DC Comics can put different color cardstock covers with just a logo, there's no art. Underneath it, they all had the same cover. People lost their shit. They went nuts for a blue cardstock cover, a green, an orange, a red. I think those are those were them. I don't think there was a purple, but that's why then, you know, Marvel started dipping into the different Todd out of polybagged and unpolybagged, uh, you know, d- different, different color variations of the cover, which then led to X-Force, which then led to X-Men. Batman was ripe. Batman was ripe. They had done Shadow of the Bat around that time. They're continuing to bite off. Todd himself had put a Batman option prior to Spawn. Uh, I believe that there is a very healthy uh, notion that Todd uh, does do Batman and stays on Batman while he plans out his next course. I've already said I was leaving. I'm doing the Cable miniseries, maybe three or four more issues of X-Force, and then I'm gone. I've I've been on that book then at that point, plus 30 issues. It's a long time uh, to write and draw and create, and I felt like I had contributed all that I had. And I, while I had discussions about other things, as I said, the Titans really wasn't um, what, what what I had hoped. And I believed that, that I mean, look, DC didn't make our deal. They didn't make our deal going forward, which freed us all. It probably rallied us a little. I think it probably rallied us. But I think Todd was absolutely trying to get, you know, he would have wanted the very best possible deal he could have gotten. Jim would have been intercepted by Marvel. They would have kept him because that's what they already tried to do. And I think that DC was not as attractive. It's ironic. I know that Jim ends up selling his company to DC Comics and has been an executive there for 20 plus years. But the idea at that time is I believe Marvel would have reached him. Jim had a passion and a love. And I think he wanted to, I mean, again, what do you do when you sold, have the best selling comic of all time? You want to have another station. You want to be told that your contributions are more significant than the others around you. Ego absolutely plays into all of this equally as important as business. And uh, we were getting, Jim, Todd, and myself were having convention people fly to meet us. I had in my Orange County home conventioneers flying, trying to come up with contracts to commit me to six to seven to 10 dates to go on tour, uh, special deals, you know, what, what would it cost? We were having trading card companies, t-shirts, people were flying to meet us because of the success that we had had. And, uh, so the reason so much of the focus is there is that not only did we have the attention and we were making the big splash, uh, you know, the, 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 and, and again, we are the three guys who had the million selling titles at at Image, and there was an idea among many guys that, oh, it's going to change. When we do Image, we're going to reset. Well, that didn't happen. Whatever that notion was, that didn't that didn't occur. But what did happen was, again, this uh, we had, because 
that we had uh, the money that we had. It gave us opportunities that we wouldn't otherwise have possibly pursued. And, uh, you know, I remember all of this as if it was yesterday. Remember, Todd tracked us all down, all the L-boys. Liefeld, Lee, Limp, you know, uh, uh, Larson. He was tracking us because we were, we were competitive. He was competitive. That's competitive. That's what a competitor does. He keeps his eye on his competition. What I'm going to tell you right now is that had uh, Valentino would have stayed with Guardians, he was not going to take uh, a questionable leap. I, I think, again, he would have dabbled as I was going to dabble. So what happens to me? Again, it, it, Capullo moves in on X-Force. I believe all of that continues to happen except... Jim and Wills are staying in the X office in my scenario, which means there's less seats to go around. I don't believe the Kuberts, Adam and Andy, don't move in in the manner that they did because Wills and Jim have not abdicated. Prior to Jim leaving, he he really liked doing layouts and having Art to Bear finish him. Those Ghost Rider issues again, they were layouts for our Art. Went on to do the Cable miniseries, you know Art to Bear, Cable regular series. And then joined us at Image. I'm going to tell you one, as we round out this episode and this exploration of everything that happened. Here, I'm going to get to the the, the juice on the meat on the bone here. At Mile High Comics in early 1993, when we went there on an Extreme Studios tour. Myself, Marat, uh, Dan Frega, Brian Murray, Richard Ori. There's a picture of all of us with the owner of Mile High Comics, Chuck Rosansky. They had cakes for Supreme and Young, but it was great. A young talent with samples comes up to me and he shows me his portfolio and they're the best samples I've ever seen. It draws, he's drawing in the same style that I love that Art Adams had kind of left behind this hybrid Michael Golden, uh, Barry Windsor Smith, but he's in, this kid is influenced by early Art Adams and his work looks like early X-Men annual, New Mutants annual Art Adams. That kid, and he knows this, he was there, his name is J. Scott Campbell the superstar artist of creator of Danger Girl and Gen 13 and everything that you know him from. I said, oh my gosh, these, these samples are amazing. He's like, oh, thanks. I said, I'd like to hire you on the spot. And this is the first time because I had just hired Jeff Matsuda. I had just hired Chap Yap. They were incoming when we got back. They were going to land at the studio. They're going to be part of our new immediate Extreme Studios expanded offices that we moved, which towered alongside Angel Stadium for about four years, that's where we were housed. That, that's where the Extreme Color Department uh, was created. J. Scott Campbell says, I've actually shown my samples to Art to Bear, and he is hooking me up with a gig in the X-Men office. When you're showing samples, you meet people on the road, you meet people at shows, you send them the stuff. That's how I met Jeff Matsuda. Hot pink envelope, I tear it open. I called him immediately. I want you to come work for me. I want you to come work for me. I'm going to fly you out. I'm going to put you up. So, J. Scott Campbell, in early 1993, is en route to Marvel Comics via Art to Bear as his contact person to draw X-Men books. That happens in this scenario. No image comics. Uh, There's no one else but Marvel and DC to send your samples to. Art to Bear was there. He was inking... Um, X-Men, X-Factor, Wills Portacio, Jim Lee, he ain't myself. He was a staple of the X-Men office. Those royalties were great. Art uh, is somehow still crosses paths with J. Scott Campbell. They are Marvel 
Art is at Marvel at that time. There is no reason that he would not be at Marvel at that time. J. Scott Campbell interacts with Art if he had not already sent his work to Jim Lee as well. He might have mentioned that he had sent some stuff to Wildstorm as well, but he basically was like, I'm going to go do some Marvel X-Men stuff. I didn't want to press it. I didn't want to make him comfortable. I immediately then backed off and said, man, great for you. I can't wait to see your work. In my scenario, J. Scott Campbell draws X-Men books. I believe he becomes the most popular X-Men artist alongside Jim Lee, rivaling Jim Lee. Remember the response to his work on Gen 13. No Image Comics, no Jim Lee, no Rob Liefeld, no Todd McFarlane union to make Image Comics. J. Scott Campbell becomes the biggest X-Men artist, picking up exactly where Jim left off, maybe even possibly more popular because you have to be, you have to remember the fervor that his work created around Gen 13, which was a bunch of unknown characters and a brand new untested talent. But that book went off the charts and became the hottest thing in the in the, in the comics industry for the first six months that those books were coming out. Generation X was a product of Scott Lobdell and Chris Pacello. I'm not sure that J. Scott Campbell isn't that guy, but I, I, I really believe J. Scott Campbell has put on one of the other X-Men titles, either the title that Jim is going to continue to draw with his new power that Marvel has bestowed upon him for not going across the street and doing DC Comics, or Uncanny X-Men. Uh, and J. Scott Campbell does not have the trajectory that he has. And here is where I will leave today's podcast. If there is no image comics, what happens to Marat Michaels, to Dan Frega, to Brett Booth, to Scott Clark, to Ryan Benjamin? The feeder system that the studios created is not there. We do not create this opportunity for young talent to come in and cut their teeth on our talent, on our titles and grow and expand. That same talent base is absorbed by Marvel and or DC. And I gave you an example, exact example, from the mouth of J. Scott Campbell himself, who says, I am in contact with Art to Bear and he is going to get me some work in the X office. What, what, what happened between me not seeing him at Mile High Comics is Jim intercepted and, you know, that happened. I chose not to press it. I didn't throw money at him. I didn't make him uncomfortable. He was so polished, so confident. I knew that I'd be experiencing... J. Scott Campbell's work somewhere, somehow, but not on extreme titles because I didn't want to make it uncomfortable. But everyone was really impressed with his titles, his talent. I am absolutely positive without an image comics, J. Scott Campbell interacts with Art Taber or Jim Lee exactly as he was and gets installed on an X book and blows up. The other talent, they're absorbed in some other capacity between Marvel and between DC Comics. And so now you see the kind of stuff that I'm laying out. No image comics, a world without image. It, 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 it came together on the razor's edge, everybody. It was not as tight as you are led to believe. Mark Silvestri needed the hardest of hard sell in a diner by Todd McFarlane, who was talking to him off to the side, while Jim Lee, myself, Wills Protasio, we just kind of all hung out when we were all visiting New York for an X-Men retreat right before we made the, the final break. The, 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 the same trip that we told Terry Stewart we're not going to come with you. The same trip that we believe Jim was with us 100%, but we later found out that Carl Potts, Tom DeFalco, Bob Harris, and Terry Stewart flew to Southern California for one last-ditch effort to get Jim. I'm telling you, the, Im the image story is even more incredible because of how... Uh, 
just kind of disjointed it all was. And, and it was driven by competition, by a, uh, a, a, a desire not to miss out, not to miss out on a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. That's what I think triggered Jim. That's what I think triggered Todd. But, but those openings were because DC spurned us on. And, and I'm telling you, because again, because I know I was there, why is Jim's book solicited last? Because he signed on last. Um, Valentino stays with Guardians. Eric either stays with Spider-Man or goes to DC. Todd launches his Batman comic. I do Executioners. I do Youngblood, whatever it probably sells. You know, I, again, I am very, I'm a commercial draw at that time, but I don't believe that it sustains anywhere near the interest uh, that it did. Before I got on today, I looked at the first year's releases. In uh, in the first six months of Image Comics, I produced eight books. In the first year, going April to April, it's like 18 comics. We were pushing each other, all of us. From Youngblood to Brigade to Supreme, I'm, I'm just putting my characters out there. I'm expanding my universe. Um, you know, Todd comes strong with his spawn. There's just one early month that I, there's, a, there's a gap either between six and seven or or five and six, but he's getting his books out there. I've got Brigades, I've got Youngbloods, I've got Youngblood Strike Fire, I've got Supremes, I've got Blood Strike that launches all in that period. Jim's got Wildcats. We do Darker Image. Mark does Cyberforce, Shadowhawk. Everyone's pushing each other, and. We had the attention of uh, of an industry in a way that I don't think anyone's ever experienced since or prior to that. And it fueled us. But it was almost, very nearly, uh, fractured. And so many people bet against us because they heard what was happening behind the scenes. Do I believe that some factions were each telling of some of their friends in the industry, I don't know how long I'm going to hang out with this. I don't know how long I'm going to be here. I don't know if this is going to work. And it was traveling back to... The reason people said we weren't going to hold together is in that early age, in those first couple of years, is because I think people were telling people we're not going to hold together. I don't know. But that is a glimpse of what a world without image looks like. The talent, the technology breakthroughs. The production values, the characters. Uh, you guys, does bravura happen? No. Uh, I don't think legend. I, I so much image was the catalyst for so much that in our next examination we'll go through all of the other pieces that didn't quite form together. But this is my, you know, dwelling on what a world without image would have looked like, what it would, it would have felt like, and uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the 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 idea. That 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 this shaky coalition never really made, never really came together. Opens up a world of crazy opportunities, and some that were right there, right there the entire time. Does Stephen Platt do Moon Knight? Still do Moon Knight? Of course he does. He was doing Moon Knight while we were doing Image, but that transition from Moon Knight to Cable likely happens immediately, and he transitions into the X office, and who knows what happens there. We saw what happened when he came aboard Profit, which was doing huge and then did even better. And, and, and that Moon Knight heat was severe. These are the kind of scenarios you got to run through your mind. It's very interesting. You guys, I love hanging out with you. I'm so glad to be back. I'm so glad we're back and we're hanging out and we're talking comics and we are examining a world without image. There will be a follow-up episode. It's coming. It is coming. This one is, is a lot to focus. But again, you had three guys 
who had hit the big time. They'd made a lot of money. They were investing. Todd was investing in sports cards. You know, where were, what were we going to do when we got our checks, when, when our money landed 10 months later? Well, you saw we invested in studios, in equipment, in talent, in technology, building up color departments, and, and pushing, pushing the fringes of comic books in maybe a way that you weren't aware until today. My color department was set up by my wife's cousin who had the expertise, the technical know-how to build out and create a bigger, you know, structure than the one that I had. And it, did it impact the business? It absolutely did. Those are kind of the follow the money strategies and follow the opportunity strategies. At the end of every episode, I read you, I read the reviews. And today I'm going to read your reviews, read two reviews. You guys are so generous that you left for me over the last couple of weeks as I was taking a holiday. I hope you guys all enjoyed your, 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 your holidays, your Christmas, your New Year, your Hanukkah. And now we're back at it in a new year. I'm going to read from my good buddy here, Giller Mo Carlos, 132. Amazing podcast. Rob, an amazing podcast. I have listened to every episode and you always do such an incredible job. I love the stories and inside look at the industry and the inside look at the industry. It was fantastic getting to talk with you at C2E2. You always make everyone feel so welcome at your booth. On my ride home, I listened to your latest episode on George Perez. That was truly one of your best. George is a legend and a gem, and so are you. Keep the podcast coming. And as always, Rob, let the Bronco buck. Bill, so you guys are so great to me. And on all of these, like end of the year, LA Comic Con, I did a store signing. I went to Chicago. I met people from Idaho, from Iowa, from Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, Illinois. And so many of you, we engaged about this podcast. I cannot tell you how thrilled I am. It always takes me by surprise because it's still really new to me. But you guys are so great the way that you have shared your enthusiasm for this show. I appreciate it so much. Great meeting you, Guillermo. Uh, This very kind review is left by the Jose. The Jose writes, my absolute favorite podcast. This podcast is incredible. I have never been able to follow a podcast outside of only a few episodes as they generally don't hold my attention very long. That changed when I stumbled onto Rob's observations. I listen to this podcast every day, working my way up to the current episodes. Rob's love of certain comic issues, comic stories, and comics in general, along with his well-researched history of comics, makes for an amazing listen. I was a fan of his when I was a kid, buying up issues of X-Force, Youngblood Prophet, and his other image titles, and now I am a bigger fan as I listen to this podcast. This podcast brought me back to enjoying my childhood hobby of reading comics. I dug up my old back issues to read. Now I'm going back to my local comic shops to buy up back issues as I missed that I was a kid, when I was a kid. Thank you, Rob. I am loving this. Keep up the fantastic work. Thank you, The Jose. You guys are so generous. Thank you for these. I need them badly. I need your reviews. I need your high five stars. We're getting spammed. Counter the people who want to negatively affect the show with positive effect. Leave your reviews. Leave your five stars, subscribe, spread the word. I appreciate it so much. I will read your reviews as you read them at the end of every episode. Thank you for enjoying today's show. This was a blast. The perfect way to kick off the 30th anniversary of Image Comics and all that it has uh, impacted this comic book industry. I'm so thrilled to share this with you. You guys, I am all over social media. I am on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. Full name, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. That's me. I have a blue check. It says I'm real. That's me. I'm legit. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. Again, blue check. At Rob Liefeld. No Robert, just Rob Liefeld 
Look for me there on Facebook. I'm all over the place. I'm in a million groups. Silver Age, Bronze Age, Modern Age, uh, 90s, Land of the Lost, Charlie's Angels, you know, Planet of the Apes, Logan's Run, Star Wars. I'm, I'm, I'm everywhere. I, I love Facebook. It's it's a fun community. We have our observations page on Facebook. Please check it out. Please like it. Please enjoy the discourse. Talk to us. Share ideas. I love hearing from you guys. It is such a delight and it's so great to meet so many of you in person. You know what time it is. This is the time where you tell me, you commit, you're going to take care of yourself. I believe you. You have to. You have to take care of yourself. These are crazy times we're living in. Take caution. Slow down. Take care of yourself. I, I appreciate you guys so much. I just want the very best for you. All right? Let, let, let's do this together. Let's head into this new year. Let's have each other's backs. I, I appreciate you guys so much. <laughs> you are going to stay strong. You're going to take care of yourself. And I guarantee that you and I are going to talk again real soon. 